0: Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed
1: in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpe, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has over a million listeners around the world. The Common Bridge is available on substack.com and draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. Well, the economy's on everybody's mind, and here we are on the Common Bridge with hey, a return Rich, guest. How are you? Good to see, nice to see you. my good friend Kerry Killinger, episode 95 of the Common Bridge. This is in March of 2021, March 23rd, to be specific. Mr. Killinger and Linda Killinger previewed their very well-researched book called Nothing Is Too Big to Fail. I highly recommend their reading about economic history, what we're experiencing today, and especially what the future might hold. Now, Kerry Killinger is eminently qualified for this as his (laughs) his, uh, full bio will be on our websites. Be sure to listen on Mission Control Radio, subscribe on Substack, and follow us on social media and at richardhelpy.com. So Kerry, back in uh, March of 2021, we talked about inflation, the the price of things over their intrinsic value in six asset categories. And if memory serves me correctly... It was stocks and housing, commercial real estate, luxury goods, household net worth, and Chinese real estate. And maybe could we add commodities and food today?
0: We can add lots. And Rich, uh, thanks for having me back. And uh, it's great. And by the way, congratulations on your podcast. It's my go to. Uh, oh, thank you. It's checking in every week to see what's going on in the world. And you just got some great guests, and I appreciate it. And uh, uh, I got my subscription into your new deal. And, oh, great! Thank you. Uh, and I'm for getting uh, broadened out beyond just the podcast to uh, to your uh, to your update and reports and the different things you do. And so, good luck. I hope it goes well for you.
1: Well, thank you. And we do have some uh, really terrific guest columns yeah. coming up. And later this month, February, we will be publishing our first newsletter. And what we're really hoping for is a lot of dialogue. Uh-huh. There's a lot of rancor out there, and we think that we can discuss issues of the day as adults that, are, that have an interest in making this a better country and a better world. I think you're doing a great job, and I think the
0: country needs it right now. Um, let's talk about inflation for a minute. It was pretty funny. Last March, when we were talking with you, and I'm fortunate to have my wife, Linda, who co-authored her book with me on that, and we said at the time, I remember saying, you know what? Inflation is really taking off in this country. And the Fed, uh, Federal Reserve had a saying that they were doing everywhere at the time, don't worry about it. They said inflation is transitory. It's not for real and all that. And all of a sudden, the real experts at the Fed were just flat wrong. And what's happened is over the last uh, a couple of years, in particular, we stimulated the economy so much to try to fight COVID, not only with the government going into huge deficit spending and all the safety net programs they put up and the like, but the Federal Reserve kind of almost went berserk in terms of how fast they grew the money supply how low they kept interest rates in relation to uh, inflation and, uh, and the purchases of assets they did themselves. They bought $4 trillion of assets the last two years. And guess what? When the Fed's buying all those assets, that drives prices up. And uh, they're not bargain shoppers. Yeah, they are yeah. not bargain they're, they're shoppers. Just, who'd have thought? Yeah. That? So So that stuff is really cool in the short run. It's kind of like, you know, you take a drink. That feels pretty good. And you take two, three, four and five. Well, the Fed got just totally drunk. Oh. And, and now we we're, we're have the impact of it, which is runaway inflation, the greatest in 40 years in this country. Uh, so we have seven and a half percent inflation over the past uh, 12 months on kind of everyday items that are measured in the consumer price index. But beyond that, the inflation that went on into common stocks, Bitcoin, uh, NFTs, SPACs, all these kind of new speculative uh, instruments were multiples uh, of that. So all the asset bubbles that I talked about last spring that we were worried about uh, have become even more inflated today. Now I think the I think the bloom is starting to come off that rose. I think that the uh, speculative peak of all that activity may have been late summer for stocks and some of the more exotic instruments. And I think the peak of speculation may have been right at the end of the year for uh, housing and some of the real estate things. And I think that we are now seeing the other side of that. That speculative boom may be coming off and we may be headed for a fairly significant uh, correction in some of those uh, bubble prices.
1: Well, it's going to be a wild ride. And when I think about this on fairly simple terms, we put all this liquidity, all this new money out there. At the same time, we had broken supply chains. We had construction down because of COVID. So isn't that kind of basic economics? A lot of dollars chasing fewer goods. That's inflation.
0: It is. And and one of the things I take exception with the government is they have continually come back and said, Uh, All these issues we're facing on inflation are just supply chain and COVID related. And no, these things are uh, all a reflection of those crazy uh, policies that the Fed put out, as well as the expansive uh, policies of the federal government. They put way too much money out, too few goods for people to buy. They went out and just kept bidding up the prices. And in some areas like housing, where they where the Fed kept interest rates artificially low, that made affordability very, very good for things. And people got panicked, just kind of kept going out and buying and buying and buying. And and then we had new players come into housing, like private equity funds and pure investors, and they helped really drive the price of housing up in some markets. I know and, some,
1: and, the, and the price of that house is outrunning wage increases. So people that yeah. are in the parts of their life where they're trying to get a down payment together, they can't reach it.
0: I think, you know, you're right. And what's going to happen is everything we can tell is that interest rates are going to be going up. And uh, the net result of that is um, affordability of housing is going to get less. And if that happens, then, you know, we're probably going to see the other side of that and start to see supply come on the market for more houses and fewer buyers and that could turn from a very speculative um, uh, seller's market um, to more of a buyer's market, I think, in the next uh, next six to 12 months.
1: Is there any areas, any states that, that are more affected than others? I, I know that I've read things uh, lately. Well, of course, California is always a discussion. Texas, um, what's going on there?
0: You know, what's unusual with the, the housing bubble this go around is it's gone everywhere in the nation. And the average is prices have increased about 35% in the last two years. Remember, housing should only be growing at the rate of inflation, but about 1% or 2%. So when you, uh, when you have a 30 some percent increase over two years, that's not very sustainable. Uh, now, certainly, some markets are much more vulnerable than others, uh, particularly worry about ones that don't have good long term prospects where their tax policies are, are not attractive and people are moving out of there and the like. And others where, you know, you just got into a speculative boom. So I would just target those markets where you grew much faster than 30 some percent and saying they tend to be a little more vulnerable than those that didn't.
1: You know, if I put on my cynics hat or skeptics hat, when I'm told that not to believe my lion eyes with about those empty shelves that I see in the grocery store and not to believe the price that I pay for a gallon of gasoline, even with my hybrid car, and then that same voice is telling me, hey, don't worry about this 7.5% inflation because it's only gonna last a little bit. I have a hard time understanding, especially then the next thing is, well, we're gonna raise interest rates. Now, you and I did business at a time when interest rates were market. Yep, And we've got a whole generation of people that have never dealt with the cost of money. It's going to be crazy. It, it, it's certainly going to be a new transition for a lot of
0: people to realize. Now, let me give a real simple truism, is that over the long run, the rate of in, or, uh, interest rates in, have to be at or above the rate of inflation. Mm-hmm. And that's historically been the case. Whenever you keep interest rates way below the rate of inflation, you create these bubbles. And we've been through that. Now the Federal Reserve has no choice today but to start reining that in. They have to raise interest rates, or inflation is going to go just crazy, even from where it is today. And they have to stop uh, putting excess liquidity into the system through uh, money supply growth. And they they're going to uh, reverse their purchases of all these mortgage and Treasury securities. And so all of these tailwinds that the stock market and housing and everything's had that's really helped fuel these bubbles is now going to be a huge headwind. And the question is going to be, will the Fed manage that deflation of those bubbles in an orderly manner? Or do we risk having, like we did in uh, 2007 and 2008, a piercing of the housing bubble with, the, with, with them not responding appropriately? and We had liquidity crisis, and then we had a meltdown of the whole economy. We certainly hope we avoid that, but you can't assume it's avoided.
1: Well, I, I've read in, in my economic reading that uh, governments cannot allow deflation to get into the economy because once it gets in, it's really difficult to arrest. And, you know, again, to think it's simple, let's say I'm going to make a major consumer purchase like a car or refrigerator. And I think, you know what, if I wait six months, the price is going to be lower. And so I don't buy it. And then, I, you know, other people join in on that. And I said, well, you know, maybe it's six more months. Well, then there comes a, a layoff at the manufacturing mm-hmm. plant that's making that. Now those people don't have spending power. They're not spending. And now the, the economy tumbles down into deflationary, into a depressionary cycle. Are we at any risk for that?
0: I, I think at this point, the risks are, are a little bit different. The Fed would like to see inflation average about 2% per year. And I think most of us who have run businesses say, yeah, a predictable 2% of inflation, that actually is pretty good. You know that prices are gonna go up over time, you build them into your wage structures, and it goes pretty well. What's happening today is now inflation surged to 7.5%, and workers understand that. So they're demanding more and more, and the wage structures in the country are growing at a very rapid level. And what's going to happen is that's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy to inflation for a while. And we saw that in the 80s in a major way, that once you get people's expectation of wage increases being very high, it's very, very hard to unwind. So I think the real risk over the next couple of years is going to be inflation remaining at a high level. And we probably don't have a big deflation risk for everyday items like the Consumer Price Index uh, reflects but we do have a risk of uh, deflating these asset bubbles. Mm -hmm. So don't be surprised if the stock market uh, corrects 20 or 30% someday. Don't be surprised if uh, housing prices actually come down in a number of markets. Don't be surprised if commercial real estate uh, starts to soften a little bit. And don't be surprised at all if these highly speculative newer instruments uh, like uh, Bitcoin or some of the more exotic ETFs or NFTs or all the little nomenclatures of things that we came up with in the last couple of years for speculative investments, those bubbles could easily burst in a major way.
1: And I think that's a caution for our listeners. And based on my experience and based on the very learned experience of Kerry Killinger, beware of financial funny works. When financial markets get cute and they start doing the financial engineering, the credit default swaps where there really wasn't A counterparty there, the securitized assets with very weak underlying instruments. I get worried. And now the special purpose acquisition companies coming back, getting very popular, getting inflated and pulling back. And that's just, that's also called a blank check company. Probably cover that in another episode of the Common Bridge. But when I think, when I look at all of these financial funding works coming in, that's another sign of a major correction or crash, perhaps.
0: It, it is. And I commented a little earlier. I think uh, we may have seen a speculative peak in some of those kinds of things sometime last summer. Remember when we had with the Robinhood platform and all these meme oh, yeah. stocks going right. kind of crazy, and SPACs were the, were the order of the day. IPOs were going on in a mm-hmm. hot and heavy yes. way. What's happened now is, it, is, is uh, the 70% of all IPOs last year are underwater now. Uh virtually all the SPACs, not all, but most of the SPACs that came are underwater, have not done well. And I think that people have kind of realized that that speculative peak was a little bit crazy. Uh, what? Uh So I, I'm not surprised to see if this starts to roll through other categories. I mentioned even housing, I think, may have had a peak in uh, right at the end of the year or the early part of this year. And if I'm right, that interest rates are going to keep moving up in here. I think. I think that bubble is going to uh, start to cool down uh, pretty quickly.
1: Well, let's talk about the the effect of rising interest rates. So first of all, you know it'll make less money, less cheap money available for the chasing of goods. But you also mentioned that the Fed won't be buying the mortgage securities. So that's going to drop demand for that, which means lower potentially asset prices there. The cost of the servicing the federal debt is going to go up now because we are going to be paying a higher level of interest. And it's we, we still would have, even if we did a 500 basis point increase, as as they're talking about, and the much hand wringing, I'm frankly not worried about it. We're still going to have negative real interest rates because our inflation rate will be greater than our borrowing costs, correct?
0: In the short run, in the long run, we know that uh, uh, interest rates will tend to rise to meet or exceed the rate of inflation. So again, if inflation, even if it remains in the, say, less than seven and a half, it comes down to three to 5%, that's still not reflecting in current interest rates. So I could see interest rates growing two or 3%. Ah, uh, just to kind of catch up with even more of a of a three percent or four percent kind of right, and, and
1: savers are still at a disadvantage. Yeah, and wage earners actually have illusory gains because that extra dollar in their paycheck it can't buy as much. And and it's these policies are really crushing the lower economic strata and the middle income earners.
0: You're absolutely right on that point, and. You know, if we look in, in hindsight now and all these measures that have gone to, uh, for to fight COVID and the biggest beneficiaries by far have been the billionaires of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you take somebody like Elon Musk and I love Tesla, I haven't owned a car. But, uh, you know, Elon, or, first of all, the federal government policies help make Tesla what it is with all the subsidies and the and the benefits that they got and then when the uh, fed made all this money so easy and put speculative conditions well he's now the richest person in the world and uh, added uh, billions and billions and billions to the value he and other high end folks were the major beneficiary of all these policies the average consumer is no better off today than they were before covid despite all these government spending programs so the the the, the benefits primarily went to the upper one-tenth of 1%
1: of our society. Well, there's scientists. One of my favorite, Martin Koldorf, writes about this, how the policies really attacked middle-income earners and attacked lower-wage earners. And basically, we have a class system that people that could work out of their laptop from a remote location kept right on rolling. But if you were needing to get to work to do whatever it is you did, you didn't have that opportunity. And is it any surprise that right behind Mr. Musk you have Jeff Bezos because people are at home ordering off Amazon and getting their food delivered from Whole Foods. And so his worth has skyrocketed based on Amazon, as have a lot of the other online platforms.
0: You know, the one other uh, concern I have for the average uh, worker or individual is that with the, um, we have a very good likelihood of returning to a phrase that we all had back in the 1980s of stagflation, Mm -hmm. where we have inflation above a comfortable level and the economy slows. Now, in recent times, all these these federal policies have helped prop up the economy, but I think we're at the end of that. The federal government can't stimulate it anymore. I think inflation is starting to take a toll, and I think the economic growth over the next uh, year or two is going to slow. So we could have this simultaneous improvement, or I mean, very high inflation, very low economic growth, and that's not a good employment uh, position long run for people. So I I worry that for the average uh, worker, that we end up in a position where inflation is still going on, they're losing purchasing power, and maybe the environment for getting jobs and changing and the demand for workers actually starts to slow down. And that could easily happen later this year.
1: That's a very uh, scary scenario. And my experience with every time we've had a recession, we've talked ourselves into one. We said we think a recession's coming. So we all started acting like there was going to be a recession Mm -hmm. and we get one. The good news is that when we decided it was time to be over, we just talked ourselves out of it. And and (laughs) so, you know, that that ends after, you know, unfortunately, a lot of a lot of pain. So as we're talking about inflation, is this can the consumer just expect steadily climbing prices and they kind of get to a new level or steadily climbing and then some perhaps on a retrenchment and are all these asset classes going to trade the same? And I know I want to get to China too.
0: Well, we know they're not going to all be the same. And some of the things that have jumped up in price pretty dramatically, like used cars, uh, right now, uh, I think that that's going to work itself through the system as we get through some of the uh, the chip shortages and people get uh, geared up with more of the of the newer high demand cars and the like. And I think we'll finally get through that. Uh, I, I do worry on the inflation front that government does not factor in what's going on in housing prices in the consumer price index. They do a summary of what the impact is on rents. Well, rents always lag change in asset mm-hmm. prices. Uh, now, back in the 80s, they used to include housing prices. And so that came right through it. This go around, we said, uh, we're not going to measure uh, housing prices in the inflation rate the same way we did. So that <laughs> one's still coming through. So I, I'm worried about the impact that's going to have. But, uh, but I do think these supply chain bottlenecks are going to gradually go away. I think, you know, I, in a way, I'm a little worried about it, that our demand is going to start slowing down. For a lot of goods and services as the, if if I'm right, that the economic growth slows. So some of these uh, inflationary pressures will ease back. But will we return to less than 2% annual inflation? I don't think so. I think it looks like we're in a period where above 2% for a while is likely, and that's going to keep putting pressure on the Fed to uh, keep raising interest rates to try to get that to catch up with the rate of
1: inflation. So we're going to make it di- more difficult for people to buy a house or to rent, but we're not going to count that in inflation because it's too scary. And you don't want to hear about that. We're not going to count it. Uh, of course, I think about some of the COVID data, right? What yeah. we're going to count, but th- there was an old fable about a a duel was about to be fought. And one guy was very thin and the other guy, well, well, he enjoyed his food. Okay. And, and they, the larger fellow looked at the skinny guy and he said, hey, this isn't fair. you got a lot bigger target. The person conducting the duel thought about it and went over, took a piece of chalk, and he drove two lines down the front of the larger guy. And he says, okay, any hits outside that line don't, don't count. count. <laughs> so, yeah, well, <laughs> your, your, your rent pay, So America, your rent or your mortgage payment doesn't count. Yeah. Okay, just... That's the policy from the federal government, and Kerry, we're in the middle of this restart too, which is still a wild card. And look what's going on today on the Canadian border in you know my hometown, the Ambassador Bridge, the number one land connection to our number one trading partner, is not moving any cars. Well,
0: and again, those supply chain issues are going to be here for a while. We've got to attack all those individual ones like. Uh, uh, like that one, but I, I do think they're. They're. Um, I'm actually encouraging the government today to quit blaming everything on COVID. I, I think that we are in the final. Sta- Personally, I think we're in the final stages of COVID having a huge impact on the economy. I think we're learning to live with it. Uh, knock on wood, but I think the uh, unless there's a new major variant that's an issue, it seems like we're on the uh, improving side of uh, dealing with the disease across the board. Uh, I I worry that the government has put, you know, it's easy to blame COVID because then it's not you. You got an exogenous third party you can blame. Uh, But I think if some of this inflation comes through and they actually see the economy slowing down and there's other issues, uh, many of those are self-inflicted wounds from policies, not from COVID. And I'd like to get us beyond trying to justify everything we're doing uh, and, you know, blaming it on COVID.
1: Well, indeed. And I think you hit the nail on the head. It's not COVID, but it was the public policy responses. And I see a lot of people scrambling for cover right now. And that's, of course, going to be a topic for another day, given yeah. the magnitude of it. Why don't we touch on China a little bit and then and then wrap up? I know you've got a keen interest in how the global economy interacts. What, we, what should we be thinking about relative to China? Yeah.
0: You know, I think, uh, first of all, yeah, we've been talking about how you know the aggressive policies our Federal Reserve did and our government spending, that is going on pretty much around the world. Everybody took our lead, and so the issues we're dealing with of rising inflation and slowing economies and and concerns is kind of hitting around the world. Uh, China, in specific, is one that uh, uh, I think could have a huge impact on the world because it's the second largest economy. Uh, and you know, some expect it to exceed the US economy as a leader in the world sometime in the next decade or so. So anyway, it's very, very large. Well, they too have built uh, the, that economic growth on the back of enormous debt. Uh, their debt to GDP is uh, is much, much higher than even the United States. And um, I know my wife and uh, Linda and I uh, travel to China quite often. And uh, the last time we were there, we noticed you know literally millions of unoccupied housing units around the country uh, particularly in some of the secondary cities and the like and uh, and the price point on those on those new units is much higher than what people can afford so they've done an oversupply of housing with the idea to try to keep the economy going now they're faced with the issue that they're probably worth a lot less and their largest real estate developer uh, evergrand is uh, some 300 billion dollars in debt oh and has um uh, in i think there're 280 community with thousands of major multi uh, uh apartment kind of projects and they're in they're in a cash flow squeeze so the chinese government either has to bail them out or if they don't you have the the potential ripple effect like we saw with the financial crisis here in 2007 and 2008 that when if if they for some reason remove liquidity at the wrong time and they're overextended, that huge amount of debt and things that don't make economic sense on the price of those uh, housing units, that whole cascading effect could not only affect China, and if China starts to have a really bad disease there, I can assure you it's going to have a big impact in a negative way on the United States and other uh, trading partners. And the other little subtlety I'll mention going by here it's because the U.S. consumer has been so flushed with cash from these government handout programs. Uh, we are buying an increasing amount of goods and services from China and other foreign countries. So our trade deficit is the largest in history, which means we are totally dependent on getting all of our good, cheap goods that we're all buying yeah. out of those guys. And if they have an, a disruption... Uh, That will have a disruption on our supply chain and our goods and all that kind of stuff in addition. So I think it makes a lot of sense for us to follow China fairly carefully.
1: Indeed. So let me ask you to speculate a little bit, if I might. You get an invitation. The invitation is to go to Camp David over the weekend. And the president wants to meet with you, along with the chair of the Federal Reserve Mm -hmm. and the secretary of state. And they're saying, look, we've got this multi-dimensional problem going on. What do we do? If you had to pick out two or three things, say, let's go do this, and maybe a thing like stop doing this or whatever, what would you advise?
0: I, I think I, I would advise that they have to take the medicine now of, uh, of, of for the Federal Reserve of raising interest rates. Try to do it in an orderly way, but you've got to raise rates to... Uh, uh, to attack inflation, or it's going to become an ever increasing uh, major problem. And I think I would have the Fed continue to at a faster pace of reducing its own purchases, because again, they they've got us at the party drinking way too much, and we're all drunk. Mm-hmm. They have got to sober everybody up and uh, bring that back down. And the more of an orderly way that they can do it, the better off we'll be. And I think I tell the you know from the f- federal government standpoint. You guys have built such huge budget deficits. That's unsustainable. That's helped contribute to inflation. This is the time to try to return to uh, more normalized budgets. Try not to uh, overspend and give yourself a couple of years for the, for the economy to kind of go through a transition to uh, uh, and hopefully pull down the rate of inflation. Yes, we'll have slow economic growth. Yes, uh, you politicians are going to be under attack. Because we, you know, they're not going to be able to stimulate the economy, have no inflation and keep causing prices, uh, bubbles, uh, assets to go up even more. That party is over. And so it's a matter of can you manage in a very smart way on the other side and please try to avoid breaking those bubbles in a way that brings the kind of pain that we had back in 2007, 2008.
1: Well, that, that would be sound advice to to raise that and also to have the federal government slow their spending. And I don't think this solves the problem, but we do have some incomes and wells that are just way out of whack um, that need to be addressed. And you know, perhaps we need to start looking at means testing or something for some of the big programs, Social Security, Medicare, and anything that we can do to eliminate spending in a way that's not as Painful that that it's going to no, all spending cuts cause pain. Yep, and and raising interest rates causes pain, but it's where it drops. And right now we've dropped it on Middle America, uh, we being the United States government. Carrie, this has always been a great conversation. <laughs> I really appreciate it. What didn't we cover today that maybe that we should, or any closing thoughts that you might have?
0: Well, Rich, I, no, I think uh, I think we've been very comprehensive, and as, as always, you're you're right on top of the subjects, and I think we had, had a good discussion. Um, I I, again, I think, you know, in the long run, this is still such a great uh, country and we have every opportunity to be the long term winner uh, on an economic basis, social basis, every other basis. So I don't want to be doom and gloom about some of the challenges we're facing. It's all about how do we manage through them? But don't keep trying to have a super inflated uh, party for the next uh, two, three, four years. We need to. get through this period, get ourselves back on solid footing. And then I think the long-term prospects for our country is excellent.
1: Well, look, if if I could sum that up, if our federal government could treat us like adults, and maybe the folks that are running for office could treat us like adults, like, yeah, we have problems and we can't do stupid things. Maybe that's just too much. (laughs) We've been talking today with Kerry Killinger, a man with deep economic experience who uh, has researched a book, Nothing is Too Big to Fail, that he co-wrote with his wife, Linda Killinger. Again, highly recommend the book, Nothing is Too Big to Fail. I keep it on my bookshelf. It's a great read. And the prognostications have been spot on. And that's born out of the study of history, the analysis of where we stand today. Be sure to register and subscribe to the Common Bridge at Substack. It's easy to do. Substack.com is the name of the website. You put Common Bridge in the search bar. And for just $5 a month, get this kind of content, as well as our columns, our newsletters, our transcripts, and many great guests. And more importantly, an opportunity to join in the conversation, be part of the nonpartisan future of America let us treat each other with respect and kindness while we exchange ideas. I hope you hear this on Mission Control Radio as well. One of our guest columnists, Carl Bingle, talking about his experience in the music business. And he's got a great program in Mission Control. And of course, on regular social media and other media outlet channels. And with my guest today, Kerry Killinger. Thanks, Rich. This is Rich Helpe signing off on the Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Please subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com, where you can find more interviews, columns, podcasts, video, and other nonpartisan discussions to the problems of today. On Substack, you can access the full archive and bonus columns, podcasts, and interviews for only $5 a month. Please go to Substack.com and search for The Common Bridge and subscribe. All rights reserved by Richard Helpy.